Good morning. Our reading today comes from Ephesians 3, verse 20. It's uh, page 977 in the Black Bibles. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's the word of the Lord. So if you don't know, we have been in the book of Ephesians. We've been slowly working our way all through from uh, the fall, and it's been good, and we're kind of at a transition point now. Just to give you a heads up, so I'm going to preach one more sermon out of Ephesians this next week, um, next week, next Sunday, and then we're going to detour a little bit, and I want to take two weeks to cover parenting. I want to do a couple of weeks... Um, to see what the Bible says about how we can live as parents. And I want everyone, hopefully everyone can come out for that, even if you don't have kids or your kids are long gone out of the house. I think it's going to be edifying for everyone. And I just, I'm going to warn you now, I'm not going to preach it because I'm a perfect parent, far from it. But I do want to come before the Lord under that. So that's what's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. But this morning we are back in Ephesians, this wonderful passage. And we're just covering one verse, just uh, Ephesians 4.1. Before we do it, let's pray together. God, we need you now. We are desperate for you. We are weak and needy. We long to be filled. We are guilty, needing your pardon. We are hungry and we need to be fed. We are thirsty and we need your quenching presence. God, apart from your spirit, we will not see what we need to see. We will not change in our hearts what needs to be changed. And so would you be with us this morning? And I pray that for every person here, the church collective, but every person and their struggles, you love them, you are thinking about them, and you long for them to know the joy of your salvation. Would that be true for them this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you don't know me, I grew up in Washington State, 3,000 miles away, and growing up, we would go on vacation every summer, actually a couple times during the year, not just the summer, but mainly in the summer, to a condo that my grandparents had. It was in this little gated community, you know, Washington State, running up along uh, along the um, western half of Washington State is the Puget Sound, these waterways that come in from the Pacific Ocean. And so there's all these islands that run up and down there, and my grandparents in the 70s bought a condo in the very southernmost island called Hartstein Island, and we loved it there. We still do. Whenever we go back to visit, we try to make a trip there. We just hang out, say, you come visit us. We're not driving. We're staying here at Hartstein Island. You come visit us. It is just amazing. So peaceful, so quiet, so beautiful and restful. Have you ever been to Washington State? As a kid, though, to get to Hartstein Island, you had to go all the way down past Seattle, and then there's the capital, Olympia, and then you had to drive all the way down beneath Puget Sound and then come up from the bottom. And for a kid, a drive like that was torture. Torture. 
It took so long, like I am going to die long. It was like two hours. <laughs> but then we would always see it. We, didn't, we, never, we, knew, we never knew it was coming, but then it would be there. The bridge. The bridge. Hartstein Island Bridge. And right when we saw that, we knew we were close. We knew this horrendous drive was over and we were going to get to be on vacation. And we were so happy that our family actually sang a song as we went over the bridge. It had three words, Hardstein Island and bridge. I'm not going to sing it for you. I can sing it for you later. It was our bridge to joy. This morning, we are crossing over a bridge of sorts. It's a bridge from the first half of Ephesians to the second half. And you may be wondering why you would do that. We're going to get to that, but I think it's important. The first half has been theology in a sense. A theology of God and explanation of salvation and his people, how they connect inside of that whole sphere. And then this next half is going to be the application. How we are to live now as Christians, we need to take care to understand the connection between the two sides because there is a connection in Paul's mind. We cannot ever forget that this is there. It's that word right in the middle, therefore. What is that therefore, therefore? Well, it is pointing to, it is revealing, I think, the very gospel itself. It teaches us how we can now live our lives in freedom and joy. So that's where we are headed this morning. Ephesians 4, 1, three points. One, walking the walk. Two, why you walk the walk. Three, how you walk the walk. Okay, look at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, so just quickly take a 30,000-foot view of this. Just get a basic understanding of what this verse is saying. Paul's primary point, and he wants the people of God, the newly constituted people of God, to begin to live as Christians. He is urging them, these new followers of Jesus, to actually follow him, to actually follow Jesus. I think often about Francis Schaeffer's, the, the title to his book, How Then Shall We Live? Well, that's Paul's question. It's his motivating question for us. And it is because the Ephesian church had not quite figured it out yet. They don't totally understand how they should now live. He is going to ask them to walk the walk and he is going to explain it to them. It is not so clear. So what happened a couple weeks ago for the first time in my house, happens to every house, every parent, every child. We asked one of our kids, they shall remain nameless, to clean his or her room. And they did it. Great. Thank you. We walk up to their room. We see it. It looks spotless. But then we notice that the, the blanket on their bed was hanging a little lower than it should have been covering underneath the bed and I went over and I picked it up and sure enough, all their junk was just shoved underneath the bed. That is not what I asked. I asked you to clean your room. Well, it is clean. 
No, not really. Not in the ways that we wanted you to clean it. Not in the ways that we asked you. We, we laid out some pretty, pretty, pretty obvious details and you should have done it this way. Well, they didn't know. Now they do. Paul, kind of similarly, is asking the Christians to do something. He's going to ask them in the next couple of chapters to apply what he's been teaching them, to put it into practice. But it is not clear what this means, and so he's going to have to detail it out for them, outline it. He is going to have to help them. What does life look like now that Jesus Christ has come and I've entered into this new community of faith? On the one hand, their lives are going to look pretty similar to how they did before. They're going to go to work. They're going to be in community with other Christians and non-Christians alike. But in the most fundamental ways, in the most important ways, their lives will never be the same again. And so Paul says, I urge you. You could actually translate that, I exhort you, I plead with you, walk now as Christians. So what does that look like? What are these next few weeks and months going to look like as we walk through that? What is the Christian faith like? When you walk the walk, how do you do it? I'm going to just say three things that we get from this text. First, To walk the walk means giving your whole life to it. Paul says this. He wants you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's very, very interesting. Walk. He's thinking of walking and physically, but in his mind, he is thinking of a lifestyle. Walk in a manner worthy. But I think that we need to think of it physically at first. You cannot walk two places simultaneously. Right? You cannot walk two places simultaneously. You cannot follow two people down two different paths at the same time. You definitely can't cut yourself in half and send one part one way and another part the other way. Once you decide to follow a path or a leader, it takes your whole life. To reach that destination means giving your whole self to it. Jesus said once that we cannot serve two masters. Well, neither can we follow two leaders at the same time. To walk the walk is to give everything you are. Your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your whole life to him. Second, the the walk is costly. The walk is costly. So do you see what Paul says first? He's doing it again. He's reminding them of something. He's reminding them where he is. He is in prison. He is trapped in a Roman prison. He's there on trumped up charges. And he has no idea if he's ever going to get out. He is suffering. Now back in chapter 2, is interesting. He said that he was a prisoner for Christ, right? I am a prisoner for Christ. But now he changes it. He says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Now that's a subtle change. Maybe he doesn't mean anything, but that's very rarely the case with Paul. He always means what he says. He's gone from Christ to Lord. And I think that he's introducing the idea of lordship. To walk the walk, you must commit your life not just to an idea or philosophy, 
Not just to some religious practices, some new ways to live your life. He is saying that you must commit your life to a person. To the man himself. Jesus Christ must be your Lord, your master. That is who Paul's Lord is. So take these two things. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. These were connected in his mind. They were wedded together. He is saying to the people, Jesus, when you make him Lord, it will cost something. It will cost something. When you choose to follow him down that path, it will not be easy. It will not always be fun. When you choose to give your whole life to Jesus Christ, he's going to take you down a road that will make you cost, that will make you give up something. It will be costly. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew that the kingdom of God was like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And when he found it, he rushed home and sold everything to buy that field in order to get that treasure. You know that story, that parable. We love it. I don't know, though, if it's so easy to live it. It Because you have to think about this man. Yes, he found this treasure, but he had to sell everything. These things that he was holding on to, that he loved, that he cherished. Maybe he had his whole life. What would he be giving up to get that field? What, what future ventures, business activities was he giving up on just to buy that field to get that treasure? Now, he knows the payoff will absolutely be worth it. If you do the cost-benefit analysis, it will make sense in the end. Following Jesus will pay you back a billion times over. It makes sense. But it does not negate the fact that you will have to give something up. Intellectually, yeah, there it is. There's that treasure. Emotionally, spiritually, we are connected to those things. And we must let them go. Following Jesus will cost you something. Jesus says that if you want to follow him, you must take up your what? Cross and follow him. To walk the walk is costly. Last thing, it is radical. To walk the walk is radical. To Jesus, to follow Jesus with your whole life, even to the point where you know it will cost you, means that you're going to live a life that is radically different from the rest of the world. Ephesians 4 through 6, if you don't know, it's probably the most detailed, uh, longest description of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, live as a child of God, live as a Christian in the world. And and I think that we need to be aware of it before we're jumping in. Because if you're not ready, some of these things you're going to see, you're going to be like, hang on. I did not sign up for that. You need to know how deep the water goes before you jump in. So let me just give you a snapshot, an overview of what we're going to be hitting. In chapter four, he says that we as Christians must live together with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love. And then he doubles down on it. He says that we must always, not some of the time, not 82% of the time, always speak the truth in love. It is easy to speak the truth, but not do it lovingly. It is easy to love, but not speak the hard truth. He goes on and what does he say? 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I bet you've heard that before. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you can't ever hold a grudge. You can never hold anger overnight. You've got to get over it. You've got to go reconcile. He keeps on going. You should not ever let corrupt, corrupting talk come amongst you. No gossip, no cruel speech. We should only live and talk in a way that builds others up so that it may be a grace to them. That's what he says. That is what the Christian life is. Keeps on going. Chapter 5, he says that sexual immorality and all pure impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Is that your life? Sexual immorality should not even be named among you. He says in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What are the things that we condone in the dark? He says later, do not get drunk on wine. Do not get drunk on wine. Maybe that's not a problem for you, but I knew that it was going to be a problem in the church when I was at seminary. Christian seminary, and I heard about multiple parties that they had to break up on campus. On campus where drinking was forbidden, where alcohol was not allowed. Do not get drunk on wine. Is that possible? He keeps on going and he, and he hits marriage. And I, I don't know about you, but for me, this is the hardest to hear and to put into practice talks about submission and sacrifice. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I have been married for 15 years now, and there is nothing more challenging in my life than this. Wanting to push away my duty wanting to live for myself and not sacrifice for my wife and family. Chapter 6 opens with my favorite verse of all time. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You hear that, kids? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But then verse 4 comes in and it puts cold water on me and exposes my sin. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Can I speak honestly? There are some times where I wonder if my kids think that my parenting philosophy is the opposite of that. Paul is laying out, he's going to lay out for us what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk the walk. And it is not easy. It is radical. It is extreme. What is Paul doing? He is really calling the church, the people of God, to holiness to holiness, to be set apart for the king, to be set apart in every way. And so you must understand that that does not just mean your behaviors. To be set apart for God in the Christian life in holiness means to be set apart, yes, in your behaviors, yes, in your speech, but even in your thoughts. They must be transformed. No wonder Paul says, I urge you. I urge you, walk. Point two, why we walk the walk. Why we should walk the walk. 
The Christian life is not easy. It is radical. And it's radically different from the ways that we were living before him, before knowing him. And that is a call, I think, that is scary to a lot of people. And Paul knows that. That's why he's urging them. He knows they're not going to do this naturally. They must begin to live into this life. And so he's calling them to do it. He's urging them to do it. They need to be reminded over and over again to walk the walk. That's why we're speaking of it this morning. I just want to ask why. Why holiness? Why has God called us to this life? Because sometimes these rules can feel kind of arbitrary. Sometimes these rules, these these teachings, these ways, this walk can feel limiting. Does God not want me to be happy? And we need to understand what he is calling us to. Paul's answer to this is fascinating. Look at verse 1 again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy of the calling. What does that mean? Worthy of the calling. Paul is getting across the idea of balance. Of balance. That word can actually be translated there. The word worthy could be translated balanced. To live in a manner worthy of the calling, in essence, is to bring up the beam of the scales. That's what balance is, right? So I want you to put that in your mind. It's easy to think about a scale. There's one side and there's another side and there's a beam in between. And you are, as a Christian, to live in a life worthy or to live a life in balance to what? Your calling. On the one side, your Christian calling. On the other side is your life. And so the question is simple. Are we living in balance with our calling? Are we living in balance with what the Lord has called us to do? Okay, let's say that Donald Trump calls you up tomorrow and he says that neither he nor Mike Pence want to run anymore. They do not want to be president anymore. It's possible these days. I don't know. He calls you up and says, this is it. You are going to be the next president. Well, you love your country and you say, okay, I will do it. Well, how would your, how would your life change? How would your life change now that you are the president of the United States? Well, you would have to move for sure. You, you know, you'd be protected by the Secret Service 24 hours a day. You would immediately go find out what's happening at Area 51. At least that's what I would do. But those are things that are happening to you. My question is, how do you change? How do you change knowing that you have been called to serve as president? Well, I hopefully, hopefully you would change dramatically. Hopefully your life would balance out in accordance with this new great call on your life. You are now in command of the greatest army the world has ever known. You've been put in charge of the wealthiest country the world has ever known. You have been called to lead 320 million people. The call of the presidency on the one hand, your life on the other. How will you balance it out? How will you live a life that is worthy of that calling? The call to follow Christ and live for him demands our 
balance. I urge you to walk in balance with your call, he says. Walk in a way that is, that is in line, that is worthy of this calling that you do not deserve. Maybe that you did not even initially want. But now you have. I think that we need to be honest with ourselves. I think that we need to admit that we are not in balance. And that's uh, just the, the speaking humility, right? We are not in balance. We are not there yet. That's okay. But here's my concern. Here's my concern. My concern is that we are not even trying. I worry, worry that we are not seeking to balance our lives with the great call on our lives. One way to determine this is to think about yourself in relation to other people in your life. Non-Christians in your life. People who have not been called. Does your life look different than theirs? Does it look demonstrably different than theirs? Are you living and acting in the same ways? Are you buying the same things? Are you doing the same things? Are you speaking the same ways? Are you seeking to live a life that is in balance with the call that has been placed on you, that has been given to you? Are you seeking to live a balance that is not just on Sundays, but is every day of the week? Are you living in balance in front of your kids, in front of your wife, in front of your coworkers and neighbors? Are you seeking to live a life of balance? Even when you are alone, when you are alone with your mind and your thoughts, when your eyes close at night, is your life balanced with the great call of God? I've told this story a million times, so I apologize if you've heard it a million times. It's important to me. It's a turning point in my life. I was finally living on my own. I was 20, and I ordered pizza. Bring some pizza to my apartment, and... This guy, he comes to the door, the pizza delivery guy, and immediately I recognize him, see him. I went to high school with him. I was in numerous classes with him. I was in band together with him. We actually went to Disneyland together. I knew this guy. And he looked at me and he said, hey, I saw you the other night at that Christian college group. You were on stage. You were leading in the singing. You were leading in the worship. I had no idea you were a Christian. I was, and I had been, all the way through high school. And he should have known it, but he did not. Because at least in high school, my life was totally out of balance. I urge you to live a life that is worthy of your calling. How is your life? Last point, how you walk the walk. How you walk the walk. Let's just recap. The Christian life is meant to be lived in balance with your calling. You have been called a child. A child of the living God. And now you are meant to reflect this in thought, word, and deed. And this means nothing less than our holiness. And so now our question must be, how do you do it? How do you balance your life out with your holiness to be in line with the call that you have? 
How do you balance it out? Now, if I've been doing my job well at all, you feel something of a burden right now. You feel some weight. You feel some heaviness. Martin Luther used to say that you give them law for like 90% of the sermon and then you come in with gospel at the end. It's kind of what I've been trying to do. Law. Feeling the weight, the burden of having to live worthy to our call. The call that we did not actually want. That we did not deserve. How will we do it? How will we do it? Many of us see the scale. We see our call on one side and our life on the other. And we know that it is out of whack. We know that we are not balanced and we are not even close. And even worse, we have no idea how to get there. We have no idea how to beat pornography or hatred or anger or the love of money, or anxiety, or laziness, or discontentedness, or, 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 and I want you to know the answer this morning. I want you to understand that the bridge is there to answer you. The bridge between Ephesians 1 to 3 and 4 to 6 are not just words, but good news. I wanted to preach the sermon just for this one point this morning, that Paul intentionally structured this book this way. He intentionally structured Ephesians with theology first, and then application second. Hear that again. The structure of Ephesians is first, the chapters one through three are theology. In other words, what is already true, true about God and true about our relationship with him, True about God and our relationship now with others. It's the first half. And then the second half is application. Chapters 4 through 6. How you now live your life. How you live in accordance with Him. How you walk the walk. It is very intentionally structured. Chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6. The problem is that we in our lives live out the reverse. The problem is that we live out our lives as though Paul started with the application and ended with the theology. We flip the chapters. We start with the second half. We hear over our lives, be humble. Don't practice sexual immorality. Be a perfect spouse. Do an amazing job as a parent. And then we hear the theology, it comes in. But putting the theology second, it screws with our minds and it speaks to our default mode. And it gets us back to thinking, that's something we've got to earn. That is something that we have to earn our way to. If I do this application, then I will have the joys of this theology. If I have lived a good enough life, well, then I will have a relationship with God. If I obey him, if I do all these things he's asked of me, then he will accept me. That is how so many of us relate to God. And it is either totally depressing and limiting, or on the other hand, it makes us self-righteous. Either way, there's no place to be. 
And I think this is actually a problem not just for us who are in the, in the Christian church, but those who are outside of it. Because that's how people inside the church, that's how what they think is going down. They think that this is how life works as a Christian. I see. If I do all these good things, well, then God won't send me to hell. I actually had a conversation with a guy who thought that. If I love God because he tells me to, and if I do all these good things that he tells me to, well, then I'll get to go to heaven. That's really good news. Thanks. Do you remember the WWJD bracelets? I'm showing my age here. WWJD bracelets in in college, we all wore them. I think mine was blue, and it said WWJD on the bracelet, and it stood for what? What would Jesus do, right? And so the idea, and I think that there was some, it was a good idea at some level, at least there was some altruism in it. If you face temptation, any sort of temptation, all you would have to do is look down at that bracelet and just think to yourself, well, what would Jesus do? Any temptation, what would Jesus do? Any hard situation, what would Jesus do? And then do it. Well, that was always the hard part. It was easy to think about how Jesus would respond, but you putting that into practice was always hard. And I pretty quickly took mine off. I threw it away because it just became a reminder to me of my own failure and guilt. I cannot be like Jesus. I cannot live up to him. I cannot do what he does. But this is what I believed I had to do. I was saved. And now I had to, by the power of my own will, do what was right. And I want you to hear this very clearly. That is not the gospel. And I had missed it. I, in a sense, had missed Ephesians 4, 1. I had started with the application and ended with the theology. I had started with, I must live like Jesus. I must do everything he did and then God will accept me. Others will accept me. I will accept myself. And I had missed the therefore. I had missed that, I, that these things were flipped, that it began with the theology and ended with the application. Okay, what is the therefore, therefore? It is there to mark the great reversal, to mark the great solution to how we balance our lives with our calling and live with joy. The therefore is telling you this. You can live your life in balance with your calling because you already have a relationship with God. You do not need to earn it. You do not need to work your way up to it. By virtue of Christ's atoning death and your faith in him, you already have everything in him. You have the Lord. That is Paul's point in Ephesians 1 through 3. He is not telling them these these are things that you could have. If you try hard enough, you could attain this. No. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, he is telling them what they already have. What you already have is election and adoption and a burgeoning new unity with other believers in the world. Everything I have laid out before you, it is already yours. Do you remember what his prayer was in Ephesians 1.18? He said, I want you to know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not what could be, what already is. 
Our primary motivation is not what would Jesus do. Our primary motivation is what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done for you? The fuel and ground for our new Christian walk is not our best efforts. It is not our trying. It's not our will. Our walk is motivated by something else entirely, our secure relationship with the Lord of hosts given to us by what Jesus has already done. And what does that stir up in us? It does not stir up guilt and shame and failure. We've used those things before to try to get us to do good works and they last for a little ways and then they peter out. They go away. No, when we know our relationship with our creator, what we get is love and gratitude. We serve him because we love him. We take up our crosses because we are grateful to him. We balance our lives in accordance with his call on us because that is our great joy. Tim Keller is fond of saying it this way. Religion, not the gospel, religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says I am already accepted, and now, therefore, I will obey. The best picture of this in the Gospels is when Jesus meets the ten lepers on the road. Maybe you've heard that story. You remember that one? Ten lepers suffering on the side of the road. They are calling out. They know Jesus is there, and they call out to him, Heal us, heal us. And he stops. And out of his mercy, he heals them. All of them, all ten of them. If you remember what happened at this point, the ten, they stand up and they start running off to tell everyone what had happened. Look at me. Look at my life. I have been healed. I am now clean. But there was one man who stops. He stops. He says, wait a minute. And he turns around and he runs back and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he worships him and he thanks him. Luke mentions that this man is a Samaritan. Now, Jesus says something astonishing at this point. He says this. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to this man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Why did Jesus say that? Did Jesus need to have his tires pumped up? He did a really nice thing and Jesus really needed them to come back and say, thank you so much. Is that Jesus? So why would he say that? Why would he say, why did they not come back to thank me? Jesus knew that the nine had missed out on the most important thing in their lives. What they needed most in their life was not to be healed. What they needed most was to know him, the great healer. What they needed most was not only to receive his gifts, but to understand him as the giver and live forever in gratitude and in joy. It was not being cleansed. It was not being healed. That was the main thing. It's that they could have had relationship with him and lived for him forever. We have received the love and healing of Jesus Christ too. We are not lepers though. We are ruined sinners. 
It was not our skin and flesh that was rotting away. It was our very spirits, our hearts, and Jesus died to save us. And now it is our joy to run back to him with every thought and word and deed, to run to him and worship him and to learn to balance out our scales. That is our glory, our joy, our hope. It is to look on that scale, not with fear or guilt, but with awe and wonder. Yes, our life is on, is, is there on the one side. We have a lot of way, we have a long ways to go. We have a lot of work to do. But on the other side, it's not our burden, but our freedom. You, my friends, my brothers and sisters, are his elect, his adopted children, his redeemed saints, the ones to whom he longs to give all things even unity together. That is all the motivation we need. And that's where we are going to be headed for the next couple of months. May we seek him and know him. May we trust him and live our lives in gratitude together. Let's pray. Oh God, would you continue to reverse our hearts? Our default mode is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. We believe that we must earn our way before you, before others. You must reverse this in our hearts because this is leading to our decay. This is leading to our guilt. This is making us so anxious and fearful and frustrated. Would you release us by the power of your gospel? Would you remind us constantly of the therefore. Remind us constantly of the glorious truths that we already have in you and may that be our ground and our motivation for joy. May that be our ground and our motivation to live lives that are radical, that are cross-carrying, that are lived out for the world that they may too know the gospel. God, we are praying now. This is why we pray at the end of every sermon because without your power, without your help, we have no hope. Come to us. Remind us of the good news. Build us in faith. And may we trust you with gratitude. May we live our lives with gratitude. May we balance the scale out with great joy by your great power. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.